0: hello everybody and welcome to the decouple podcast where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts and the politics that can make decoupling possible welcome back to decouple today i'm joined by madeline redfern a Canadian Inuit businessperson, social advocate, and former politician who was mayor of Iqaluit, the capital of Nunavut, for six years over two terms. Madeline graduated from the Akitsarak Law School before becoming the first Inuk to be offered a clerkship at the Supreme Court of Canada. Madeline's accomplishments and current activities are far too long to list and hard for me to, to keep up with, so Madeline, I'm going to get you to expand on those a little bit in your self-introduction. Um, but first off, a very warm welcome uh, to Decouple. It's great having you here.
1: Thank you, Chris. I'm joining so, uh, you from uh, a very frosty, cold uh, day in Nakhalweed.
0: Hence, hence the warm welcome, hence the warm welcome. But yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I really want to, you know, we have quite an international audience. We're, we're downloaded in a hundred countries around the world. Um, and so certainly there's gonna be some people that are not familiar from uh, your corner of the world. So um, we'll definitely get into that. Um, I did want to give you a chance to do a bit of a self-introduction. Um, I love your your kind of Twitter, I guess, is it the Twitter handle? It's like the little sentence that is under your Twitter profile. It says, and I quote, the last technical technological revolution hit the Arctic left Inuit eating from dew line garbage dumps. I work to ensure that never happens again. I thought that was uh, powerful. Um, but yeah, go ahead and, uh, and give us a brief uh, introduction to help my audience get to know you a little bit.
1: Okay. So I'm in my hometown where I was born where my family is and I've been back uh here for almost 25 years. Uh I have a family um and uh you know very um varied Uh, background, having worked in uh, areas of law, policy, governance, and I guess I took a a greater interest in a number of issues when I was mayor, as it affects our uh, community and our residents. So everything from telecommunications, because we're satellite dependent, really slow, so working hard to, to bring fiber optic into this region. Uh, also energy is a is a big issue because we're completely diesel dependent. Uh, our 25 communities and the city of Aqaluit, uh, even though we're only one of the 25 communities, we, Consume half of the territorial government's uh, petroleum products that they bring in, approximately 220 million um, liters. Um, so that's uh, that's a big hit. Uh, so, just in the end, you know, it's important to understand how all these things are interconnected and related. Uh, I'm a special advisor with the Canadian Nuclear Laboratories as well as a special advisor with the UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation. And now I am a, a, a member um, on the Indigenous Advisory Council for Canada's Small Modular uh, Reactor Action Plan, just because it's important to look at what our energy solutions and options are um, and how important it is to engage early with the industries um, so that they better understand our, our northern realities and also how to be able to to present good honest information for our communities to have informed discussions and make an informed decision on you know a wide range of technological uh, and innovative solutions that i think you know could really help our our region and our and our community so those are just a, a few of the things that I that I'm doing, but uh, kind of focused on you know telecommunications and energy um, because it turns out that you can't really build out telecommunications without an energy uh, solution and component. Um, and uh, these are significant, you know, basic requirements for um, our communities. Uh, ideally, they need to be stable, reliable um and affordable.
0: I, I was doing a little bit of research before this interview and just uh wanting to figure out ways to meaningfully communicate, you know, your your again, your corner of the world and Um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, ocean within it, but apparently the landmass of Nunavut is pretty close to the landmass of Mexico, um, but with a population of, you know, 40,000 instead of, I'm not sure, Mexico's, I think Mexico City's 30 million, but the, you know, (laughs) the country of Mexico is quite huge. So it's a small population, um, you know, fairly, fairly scattered. um, And, as you were mentioning, I think the, the kind of the energy requirements and the dynamics um, are very interesting. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I've i spent a lot of time in Canada's north, but sort of at the tree line or, you know, in Alpine country where you, you spend some time above and some below. But as a kind of outdoorsman or woodsman, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always kind of terrified about the idea of not having any firewood around to burn if I you know need to make an emergency fire to stay warm. And um, that's always kind of <laughs> something I consider when I think about how, how far north you guys are up there. Um but you know just uh, in terms of these these settled communities, from what I understand, the the Inuit um used to, you know, have a variety of of kind of settlement areas, but move a lot between them. Um tell us about, you know, you were mentioning uh this you know 250 million liters of diesel every year. Um I guess just help our listeners understand you know what that means for for a town like Iqaluit.
1: Okay. Well maybe just to sort of um you know, give uh, a little bit of context. So as you indicated how big Nunavut is, we're, we're effectively 20% of Canada's landmass. Uh, there yeah. are no roads in and out of our territory. So the only way in which most people, you know, get in or out is to fly. Um, and to get our fuel, it has to come in in a short sort of shipping season in the summer. Uh, Some communities do receive uh, this two fuel ships, one early on when the water sort of uh, is navigable. So in Qaluit, that's usually the uh, first week of July. Um, But depending on ice conditions, there was one year, I think back in 2012, where It was several weeks um, um, delay because of uh, weather and ice conditions, and it's you know costs the ship almost seventy five thousand dollars a day for every day that they're not able to get in. So you know it's these are huge costs. And some of the smaller communities, uh, there's only one uh, fueling that happens, and. It just makes everything really expensive as a result. Um, we don't have transmission lines that we're connected to, like in, in northern Quebec or Labrador. Um, and uh, uh, when you've got uh, the fuel that comes in, I mean, you, you, you've got to try to be careful of ensuring that you've got enough fuel for the year because if in the event that it doesn't, And it's happened a number of times in some of the smaller communities where, you know, it's particularly cold winter. um, And so people have had to consume more uh, fuel than what had been envisioned. It means that uh, the government has to then look at flying in fuel and you can imagine the cost of that and and so it's it's they try to manage it the best that they can but uh there are you know things that are just literally um you know beyond uh control and it's highly um i i guess the thing is is that they're always sort of trying to try to manage the associated risks um uh as a result so the call it uh, uh has had a power plant uh, upgrade in the, about the last 10 years. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, we still get um, quite a number of uh, power outages. Uh, it's The systems are quite fragile. A number of the communities have power plants that are older than 40 years, and the territorial government with the Crown Corporation is is trying to replace those power plants, but they're really expensive. I know Grease got their power plant uh, replaced in 2019, and that's a community of about 153 people. And that's the most northerly community, and not only in, in Nunavut, but in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, these power plants often cost 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. The, I think the upgrade to Kalowitz, uh power plant was over 30 million. And that's just an upgrade. Uh, so the poor power um, corporation is, is always just trying to uh, keep the power plants running. And sometimes, uh, like in Pangertong a few years back, the power plant burnt down. Uh, In Santa Kilowack, the power, um, one of the generators went down and they had to get a Hercules in to to bring in the replacement part. Rankin Inlet went through a number of rolling power outages to manage um, um, some equipment failure a few years ago, as did Cambridge Bay. So it's it's really, you know, um, tough because from about... September, towards the end of September until about June or July, um, most of our communities are um, close to winter or in full winter conditions, uh, at least by southern standards. So, you know, our fall is, is, uh, is much colder and our spring is much colder than sort of uh, uh, what most people would be used to. Our children often uh, trick-or-treat in snowsuits. And, and in April, May, we've got a glorious amount of sunshine, but it is sort of, um, you know, spring's spring's um, sort of skiing conditions that most people would understand if they were skiing in the Rockies. You know? But that would be usually in, in March, early March <laughs> in the South.
0: So you know, in terms of um, you know electricity heating, um, I'm gathering this isn't sort of district heating. Is is it electric baseboard? Is that how people are heating their homes up there? In terms of these. These diesel-powered nope. electric generating plants or how does or, – or you have – obviously, yeah, no, that makes sense. You have diesel furnaces or
1: – Yeah. So, we have um, um, furnaces in our homes and in our buildings. Uh, uh, home fuel sort of gets delivered uh, often on a daily basis. The power plants are diesel, so they – um, burn diesel to produce electricity um, so, and it's pretty much almost uh, a dollar per liter so it's uh, when um, the government is spending about 220 million dollars a year on petroleum products um, with the Iqaluit consuming about uh, half of that so that's 110, ten million liters um, and the it, the split is usually about one third of that will be for the power plant, and one third will be for uh, heating fuel, and one third will be for vehicles. Um, so it's 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 a big amount of money, and and year after year after year. So at times, uh, the government, you know, are are able to negotiate and secure. Uh, um, our fuel for the year at a price that can sometimes be less than, than what it is in the South, and sometimes it's more because the price tends to fluctuate um, more you know, rapidly, uh, whereas usually our price for the fuel is locked in for the, for the entire year.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting how this remote region is so tied in, you know, to the global energy system as a result. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, where where the uh, raw petroleum for that diesel comes from, where it's refined, you know, how it's shipped. Um, it's a crazy story, but it, it's interesting as well, like how it points towards just how special <laughs> fossil fuels are in terms of just being able to, to do this incredible um you know feats of logistics to get the fuel up there. That it can be moved up there. That it's energy dense enough to do that, um, and that it can provide those services. And obviously, um, it's it's kind of great for what it does, but it, it comes with some some drawbacks. Um, and what what would be the kind of drawbacks in the communities? I was just looking at a survey again, researching for this, and when people were asked about. You know what sort of fuels and, and thinking about fuels in the future and in a variety of different things. They, a lot of people are saying, "Listen, I, I really like diesel. Like it, it does a great job. It works well." So, what are, what are some of your reflections on that?
1: Well, I mean, there's there's a, there's some benefits, and there's risk with every energy source and every fuel source. So uh, there's risks, as I said, you know, bringing in the fuel uh, depending on the time of year. So uh, uh, that one year in twenty twelve where the fuel ship couldn't come in. For weeks, you um, know, put us uh, very close to the brink of running out of fuel. Uh, there's uh, also risks associated with uh, fuel spills, and we do have those happen sometimes uh, um, when it's the refueling or the um, you know, distribution of fuel from the ship um, to the pipelines in our community. Sometimes uh, there's spills that also happen, you know, as a result of uh, pipeline leaks or by the tank farm. Um, I mean, the recent uh, water contamination state of emergency that we had in Nakaluit is suspected because of the historical um, uh, spills from the power plant that is right near the water plant. Um, And with some investigation, they did find that there had been a a fuel tank with some um, remaining fuel that I guess had all rusted out. And, you know, so these things, you know, can can have quite tremendous big impacts. Um, And it's our powers can go out as I said um, because of you know Raven um, has uh, has taken out the the system um, it's it feels like for, at least for some of the communities with the older power plants that are well beyond their lifespan I mean um, you know, Tongue power plant uh, burnt um, to the ground, and that was in winter conditions. And so the territorial government had to use not only Hercules, but the Antonov, because the Hercules uh, couldn't accommodate the, the equipment. So uh, there are lots of, you know, um, associated uh, uh, challenges and sometimes risks that um, do bear themselves, because we've got you know, uh, a, a very you know, fragile or aging system. Uh, and it just, these plants cost a lot of money. So a brand new multi-million dollar power plant in Greece feared with a population of hit 153. You know, they can't afford literally to amortize that cost. So the territorial government has a program in place that tries to equalize uh, power rates, Um, And a larger place like the city of Iqaluit will pay, uh, you know, the residents pay as well as the businesses uh, more for their power rates to sort of help offset the power costs in the smaller communities. And there's pros and cons to those approaches as well, right? Because you want to be able to develop economies and attract businesses. um, And if the power rates are really high, um, or the power is unstable; uh, it does make it uh, it harder to develop um, certain you know economies or businesses uh, uh, in our region mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. so you know our our prime minister here in Canada, Justin Trudeau um, uh, on one of his uh, election tours, um, did make the promise to get canada 's indigenous communities off of diesel by two thousand thirty and I think it's just so emblematic of how talk is cheap and action is really, really hard. I mean, I think any of those that have, uh, those of us who have, have kind of deep dived energy and energy transitions, <laughs> and understand some of the challenges of the North that you've just been mentioning, um, recognize almost how comical that that kind of a promise is. Um, but, you know, trying to give that some good faith, you know, what, what are the options for, for getting communities, not just like Calouite, but the, the much smaller communities dispersed throughout Canada's North, um, off of diesel and onto, onto something else. What are, what are some of the kind of technological options that, that, that exist?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I would say that, that, you know, political commitment is an opportunity and one that we uh, who are you know, indigenous or northern remote communities on diesel have a real uh, chance of looking at how we can get off of diesel 2030 is, is probably you know too optimistic 2050 is maybe a little bit more realistic but nonetheless the work needs to be done now um, to look at what those options are and what those solutions are so i'm a meeting that actually I attended a few years back with uh, the representatives from Alaska. It was interesting to hear an approach that I think, you know, was very smart and strategic. They looked at their entire region and from a, both a macro and micro level and, and, looking at their population size, the distances, the topography or environmental conditions, their potential population growth, their economies, what is nearby, the resource sector, and began to effectively map out uh, what you know the energy options are and assessed. You know, the ones that made sense, because you can't do hydro if you've got, you know, very low topography, no fast flowing rivers, um, that's not, you know, really an option, no big lakes. Uh, and then sort of actually tested, um, at least on desktop, what were uh, reasonable options, and then also looked at, you know, where they might have a, a larger regional solution that might um, you know, help a number of communities. So uh, getting uh, transmission lines or district heat, as you said, uh, uh, solar, wind. Uh, um, at that point in time, uh, they, small modular reactors weren't really on the radar. Um, and so they didn't look at that uh, at that point in time. But nonetheless, they, they developed a strategy um and a costing out and a time frame which is something that i think we must do in canada um these announcements can be great the creation of different funding programs like the arctic energy fund with um i think it was originally um 40 million i think it got boosted up to 400 million but a fund in of itself is not a strategy Um, You really do have to do these um, assessments and then sort of look at where uh, certain um, technological solutions are better for some communities versus others. Uh, The challenges, um, you know, in our remote northern conditions, even when WWF worked with University of Waterloo and they did a, a, a sampling of about uh, five communities, the University of Waterloo representatives determined that only Sandy Kilowatt, which is situated in the southern part of Hudson Bay, was the only real candidate for you know potentially some solar, um, and that because a lot of the time of the year. Um, you know, north of 60, just doesn't get enough uh, sunlight to make it cost effective um, to to deploy a lot of solar as at least, you know, big scale or baseload solution. Um, Wind, again, you know, is sometimes worth looking at, but tends to be fairly small scale. So uh, getting a a community completely off of diesel with wind is is very unlikely because of the requirement to have a base load. So, you know, um, if you wanted, let's say, uh to to produce 1 megawatt of power then you need to build 10 megawatts um in calowet we you know are currently a 12 megawatt uh power plant and that is just for the production of electricity that doesn't even you know uh come near displacing uh the heat requirements so uh, these, are, these are very tough um, assessments uh, that we need to be very um, honest and, and real about. Uh, when I came back um, for my second term as the mayor of Aqaluit, there was this big announcement on, on the fact that the federal government helping the city of Aqaluit with $100,000 of solar panels for Arctic Winter Games Arena and that that would save the city of Aqaluit $6,000 a year. Now, you know, lots of media coverage, both locally, regionally and nationally, and and uh, I kind of remembered what, you know, some of our power costs are from my first term because we were looking at significant power rate increases, I think effectively almost 30% power rate um, increases over a period of five years. Um, and I was like, can you, know, can you remind me what that Arctic Winter Games, you know, arena electricity bill is? And, and it was $175,000 a year. And can you remind me what the city of Iqaluit, the municipal, you know, corporation's uh, power bill is? And, and, and it was a million dollars a year. So $6,000 savings is, you know, pretty much a drop in the bucket. But then when I crunched the numbers, you know, and, and really did an assessment, well, there's the shipping costs, the installation costs, plus, you know, hopefully the we would purchased the um, solar panels of a higher quality that last 25 years versus solar panels of a lesser quality. Because that's a thing, too. People, you know, don't realize that there's such a spectrum in the quality of the, of the um, solar panels. And what I was able to determine is that... Um, at best, we would break even, um, after 25 years. And then, having done a lot more research, it, uh, uh, there was no, there's no real disposal plan, not just for the city of Iqalawi, for almost any municipality in this country. There's no national plan where and how we can dispose of solar panels safely because it's got um, you know some environmental con- um, concerns regarding toxins. China used to accept solar panels, but now uh, they've stopped because they've, um, can't handle the volume, and there's a couple of uh, places in the United States that are looking into, you know, the possibility of getting into this business. But so you're going to the city of Alcalde and others are going to have to look at potentially selling off, you know, um, this liability, um, these products somewhere to have proper disposal um, and completely wipe out, quote unquote, any six thousand dollars a year savings for twenty five years. Um, because you can't just put them in the landfill as is. So <laughs> these are, you know, the, these are, you have to look at everything from, you know, what your options are. And, and ideally is even, you know, begin to understand what the environmental impacts of those options bef- when you even purchase them. So um, there's big protest in Russia earlier, um, I think last week around lithium mining. You know, these uh, everything has environmental impacts. You know, in to produce the technology, um, and then there's, as I said, sort of the the transportation, the installation costs, and then there are. I was just talking to one of the mines. Um, that in Nunavut and they had installed some solar panels and some of the solar panels have not weared or fared well in our Arctic weather conditions. And a whole bunch of them have um, buckled and broken and twisted because we're dealing with temperatures of minus 40 or colder. Uh, I think the weather tonight is supposed to be, you know, uh, minus 41. And, uh, and then their effectiveness are compromised, uh, as a result. And so, you know, as I said, these are, these are not an easy assessment and solutions and you've got to look at everything from, you know, how they're going to fare in these conditions. And then you have to look at, as I said, the end of life consideration, at least in Europe. You know some of these technologies, uh, the renewable energy, they've added effectively an upfront, you know, tax to help offset at some point, um, you know, some of the disposal considerations. But we don't have that in Canada. We do that for tires. We do that for car batteries. But we don't haven't done it for renewable energy. Um, so as I said, it's <laughs> uh, it's a big, big task, and and what I'm thankful for. Is you know this Indigenous Advisory Council that has been set up, um, attending the first inaugural meeting, just uh, um, uh, about a couple weeks ago, is the all the members saying you know we need to be able to present you know this information to our communities in an honest way um, so that uh, it's possible for communities to understand, you know, there are um, pros and cons and there are associated uh, considerations both economic and environmental um, and cost uh, um, of all these and, and so that at the end of the day, the communities can have informed discussions and make informed decisions.
0: And so, um, in, in terms of, you know, one of the options that we haven't talked about that much, um, an option that does actually account for its waste, um, nuclear energy, when did that first cross your radar? Do you remember, you know, what were your earliest thoughts were about nuclear and, and how you've come to be involved and sit on on some several of these advisory boards? Um Tell us about how nuclear is or is not a a good fit or, you know, a better of (laughs) a better of of the options or not um, for the unique challenges of of a place like Icaloids.
1: Most people know the very large nuclear plants, you know, the Three Mile Island, the Pickering, the Chernobyl, um, the Fukushima. Uh, So... What is less known is uh, the smaller, modular, uh, nuclear sort of uh, options that are literally being, are indeed right now, researched and developed. However, um, at the same time, Uh, Small modular reactors have uh, equally been um, utilized uh, by the United States Navy uh, for decades. Uh, You've got these very small uh, nuclear plants effectively on submarines. You've got them aircraft carriers, and they've been working really successfully. Uh, The uh, Mars rover has a a little um, (laughs) nuclear battery on it because you've got to have some sort of remote energy source in, in order to be, you know, able to use technology that you can't, quote unquote, just plug in easily by any other method. So, um, but nonetheless, there's, uh, I I recognize when over a period, as I said, about five years when our um, um uh, energy corporation was increasing our power rates, you know, um, repeatedly and significantly is that, oh my God, you know, this is, this is a huge hit. So uh, for the city of Iqaluit, uh a 30% increase is, it's a lot of money that represented almost, you know, over $300,000.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, I had a really interesting conversation with Jay Harris. Um, if listeners want to look back at that, it was called small modular and north of 60, but we were just kind of spitballing for a while and, and talking about, you know, visions of energy abundance in the North. Um, I, I lived uh, on the border of a very Southern, uh, indigenous reserve, uh, six nations of the grand river. And, they had a, a, a big greenhouse. It was natural gas heated. But I remember it just being this oasis in the community. It was when we were experiencing those minus 40 temperatures because the polar vortex was blowing some of that Arctic wind down south. Um, but just how uplifting it was for the community as a, as a gathering space to be in a greenhouse full of lots of, you know, like it was like taking a tropical vacation to the Caribbean or something, stepping into this greenhouse. And, you know, there was all kinds of yoga classes and people having meetings there. It was really neat. And, and, you know, with, with Jay, we were just chatting about that and, you know, this kind of energy austerity versus energy abundance and what, what that would mean for sort of quality of life and, and just possibilities, um, to, to do cool things in places like Callaweed. It, it, it sounded, you know, pretty exciting and something that nuclear could potentially offer, you know, depending on, I guess, how it's sized, but, now, it's very interesting because, you know, hearing about the limits of hydro, um, cause that, that would seem to be, you know, an option that would be, you know, very local, maybe easier to control locally, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, of these wind and solar options, I think it really has to do with how many people you're comfortable with freezing to death every winter because they're, they're just not going to necessarily always be there to, uh, to offer the services that, that fossil fuels have. I mean, it's it's again, fossil fuels are, are very special. They just have some very unfortunate side effects.
1: You know, and one of the things that I also learned, because I've been paying attention, not only what's happening you know, within Canada, but also in other Arctic regions, is that Greenland is now on their sixth hydro um, de- dam development. And while they have the environmental conditions to support that, what I found interesting is that they overbuilt their energy requirements, and mm-hmm. then found all sorts of you know extra potential uses, um, you know, for that energy. So, Nuke now has an incinerator. Also, they've built out and expanded uh, their fiber optic telecommunications. As I said earlier, you know, the reality is is that telecommunications infrastructure requires energy and one of the biggest areas for energy um uh, requirements is is telecommunications there's you know uh it's been projected that uh any place that um you know needs energy and telecommunications is going to have to consider doubling up their energy requirements mm. so this you know the, uh People are just not simply aware that, you know, how much, um, not just because of your signal, you know, the fiber optic doesn't take that much, but there's more and more data centers that uh, we're storing our data on and, and artificial intelligence has programs that need to chug through that data, you know, to make it useful. Um, so it's, <laughs> we have to not only think of, as I said, our population growth, but we uh, You know, remote mining is going to happen. We've got a mine nearby. De Beers has purchased the diamond uh, mine. Um, And you can't diamond mine on diesel. Not affordably, you can't diamond mine on on solar or wind. Yes, solar or wind might be able to help offset, you know, the energy requirements for parts of the camp, but you're going to need a big energy solution. You know, a stable, reliable, um, high throughput and affordable solution. And so, there are opportunities for us to partner with the resource sector. You know, um, if there's major development nearby. And there's also the opportunity, as I said, you know, having just been down at uh, um, Happy Valley Goose Bay and having visited both Churchill Falls and Musrat Falls, and those are hydro plants. But the reality is is that uh, the tech sector is desperately looking for northern. Um, uh, uh, locations for data centers, and so if you can have
0: that, that's because they can. That's because they can uh, save on their air conditioning bill, I guess, right? By, by
1: exactly. Wow. Exactly, but their energy requirements are still tremendous. Yeah. So you know they don't want uh, data centers. At least you know Bulk, who um, is one of our partners on Can Arctic Networks, you know the reason why they chose a northern location was that they want. Uh, um, abundant, reliable, and affordable energy um, you know, connecting Norway to northern Canada. So there are lots of opportunities. Um, you know, we have to understand that the world is changing and, uh, uh, and how it's changing and how development is changing, not only in the communities, but in the resource sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these considerations uh, have to be part of the equation.
0: I wanted to chat with you about a comment that you made um, at the Canadians for Nuclear Energy press conference where you joined us alongside James Hansen um, and Diane Damasio. Um, one of the things you, you talked about, and I'm going to paraphrase you probably pretty poorly here, but, um, you were mentioning, cause you know, you're someone who seems to be very interested in technology. You know, our, our conversation right now is limited today by the fact that your guys, um, internet is, is, you know, the broadband is so poor. You're, you're bouncing off of a satellite to be in touch with me. We've already dropped the call for, for a few seconds, which I think we'll be able to fix in editing, but we can't do video. Um, but you're someone who's, um, I think, uh, sees a lot of role for modern technology and and you said something that struck me at, at the press conference which again had something to do with environmental organizations like furthering a degrowth eco-romantic narrative on the backs of indigenous peoples and I was wondering if, if you could uh, expand on that
1: <laughs> well we've had this problem um, you know since the uh, late 60s early 70s where Uh, You know, we've had a number of our um, way of life and economies basically um, um, harmed as a result of certain environmental movements. One is, you know, disliking the fact that we've got a hunting culture and that we're, you know, our 200-mile diet is very different. We rely on seals, caribou, whales, polar bears, uh, you know, birds, rabbits, all sorts of, you know, um, and that is our 100-mile diet. Um, no, you can't sort of easily um, put in greenhouses uh, year round in, in, our, in, in, our, in our place, I, although if we had cheap, abundant power source, then yes, you could, but it's not going to be diesel. You're not know, going to, mm-hmm. um, you know, put in a, a diesel, um, um, you know, generated uh, greenhouse. Uh, that just makes um, uh, a head of lettuce, you know, cost forty dollars. And and most of the the sort of the pilot projects that have happened, even, you know, the Sea Can. Uh, um, uh greenhouses the very short growing season and most of it is all just sort of like herbs and lettuce which have do not have high nutritional value so Mm -hmm. again you know there's just all these sort of um romantic sort of uh tropes and uh, you know solutions that are not very useful it 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 so oh, uh, it's saving us but not in the way that you know uh, actually we want to be saved and if anything actually undermines uh, our ability to develop real economies and 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 solutions that work for us so no it's it's been uh, really frustrating to to see um you know, an expectation that anyone you know who lives in rural, remote, northern, indi- or indigenous parts of you know Canada—we're the ones who are supposed to take, you know, the hit for the country and reduce our energy requirements and and uh, and not compromise under any circumstances. You know, the the comfort and the lifestyles of and the economies of of our big southern cities. So we get you know large portions of our land you know get flooded for hydro dams. We've got transmission lines and, and they, you know, in the when these projects were done, there was often little or no uh, legal requirement, let alone a, a corporate social conscience that sort of required uh, you know engaging with us um, and mitigating those risks or harms. Or even you know, with those hydro projects initially, um, the power transmission lines went right past those indigenous communities without even connecting them and then requiring them to still be you know on diesel uh, for, for decades. So it's it's uh, uh, that's why um, when we speak about Indigenous uh, reconciliation, we also must, 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 must include Indigenous economic reconciliation. Um, So the mining sector has wrapped its head around that it can't do major development without our inclusion. Um, You know, many uh, Indigenous peoples are very much asserting, you know, their rights, our rights. Um, now in the energy sector and saying, you know, if you're going to do a Musrat Falls or um, you know the dam uh, uh, site C in, in British Columbia, uh, we need to be part of that conversation because we're going to bear those impacts. And how are we going to mitigate those harms and how are we going to participate in, in that sector and part, be part of that economy so that, you know, ideally we don't just get quote unquote cheap power. You know, we need a lot more than that. Um and uh we've got you know uh, a group of of folks um that don't believe that you know there should be any development um, and that to be sort of a true indigenous person you know we leave us we live a subsistence lifestyle Well that means literally you know on the brink of always starvation that you know we shouldn't have heated homes and and run vehicles and boats and and all that and no I mean we are Canadians and for the most part people want to be able to, you know, have uh, equal access to something as simple as, you know, energy, telecommunications, ability to develop uh, our economies and participate in development Um um, and so that, you know, we're not, uh, living, uh, not only a subsistence lifestyle or living, you know, on welfare and abject poverty and with high rates of food insecurity, which is, you know, unfortunately the reality for too many of our, of our communities and peoples, we need to break free from that.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting because the, you know, the rationale for, for getting off diesel, um, you know, you you mentioned uh, several in terms of things that really matter to to Inuit um, in these communities, um, which you know have to do obviously with the expense, but also contamination of water and things like that. Um, but I think it's often um, sort of justified on on a climate change narrative, and obviously, you know, that's that's a nice goal, but it, it's sort of similar to some other um, areas of the world that we're exploring on on the Decouple podcast, where. You know, wealthy countries are sort of putting climate change um, on the backs of the poorest people that have contributed the least to, to creating climate change. Um, so for instance, the, uh, the Germans who are shutting down their, their nuclear fleet, um, and still burning a lot of coal, um, are putting bans in on fossil fuel development in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. So there, there's just this, this great kind of hypocrisy and and desire for other people to sort of bear the, the costs and difficulties of decarbonization, um, when it's really, I think on, on people in the South to, uh, to get their act together both in terms of just the degrees to which they they the relative contributions to climate change but also just you know one group of people is a lot more advantaged in terms of having the resources to pour into to dealing with climate change but it's it's a very complex issue
1: it is and and that's why i said i think you know when we're looking at options and solutions it's it's really important to be looking at you know the the whole equation from beginning to end and um, what are the environmental impacts elsewhere in producing these technologies? What are the human rights impacts elsewhere? You know, mm. in in the, in these choices and options, um, and that. Uh, when we say we're making, you know, decisions that are good for the environment and and good for um, our society, well, if you're only looking at yourselves and, and nowhere else, then it's not necessarily a, a, an honest assessment. Um, um, especially as you just said, if the harms are being borne by others elsewhere, um, mm-hmm, it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it undermines actually a whole bunch of United Nation principles that uh, we've signed on to, which is, you know, to recognize that we live in this global state and that um, we need to be aware of being socially and economically, you know, and environmentally responsible Um you know, uh, as, as we are global citizens.
0: Okay, Madeline, I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. I thank you very much for, for joining us from, uh, from Iqaluit and, and bringing us some more perspectives from, uh, from the far North and some of the energy challenges and opportunities, uh, available.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.